Good morning. Uh, it's great to see everybody here. Uh, those of you, I see a lot of families in town for a family weekend, so it's great to have you guys here with us this morning. Uh, Abu, it's always fantastic. I don't know where you are right now. I can't find you, but uh, there you are. Yeah, uh, it's always great to have you. Thank you uh, for challenging us with um, being people that really fulfill the Great Commission. And uh, with that Great Commission, you know, there's, there's really actually um, two, two parts of it, right? There's this idea of going and making disciples, but also teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And that's a lot of why we actually get together here every week and, and just go through the Word of God. Because we're looking at what is it that God has actually commanded us, and how do we live that out, right? So that's, that's why we find so much value in getting together, reading the scriptures, and then working to actually try to apply that to our lives. So um, I want to ask you, have any of you guys ever been living the way street before? Or, <laughs> okay, yeah, we've got, we've got some one-way streets out here. I see it happen a lot, um, you know, because Calhoun and are both one-way streets, and uh, I live over near that way, so I feel like I consistently see people driving the wrong way, especially on Calhoun Street, and they always turn into that CVS parking lot. Um, but if you see someone that's driving the wrong way on a one-way street, what is it that you do? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, like you honk or do something to try to help this person realize that they are going on a one-way street. Um, you might consider yourself to be a very polite person. Maybe you don't really like to honk your horn very much. If you're from New York, I think if you're from New York, like laying on the horn is part of the driver's test. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but, but for those of us here in the Midwest, it's kind of like, well, uh, you know, we, we don't like to use the horn that much. It's nice. But if you're going, if you see someone doing that, you have to do something to let them know that they are on the wrong track. And if they don't get off of it, they are going to hurt themselves. They, they might hurt other people. Uh, it's a danger to everybody uh, that's out there. So for their good and for the good of everyone else, you need to let them know uh, that they need to change their course. And in life, there's also times that we have to call out something that we see as being wrong, even if it's something that might make us uncomfortable. Because what's best for everyone is for this thing to be addressed rather than for us to just continue to remain silent. And that's really what we're going to see in the text that we read this morning. Uh, we're currently going through 2 Corinthians, and we've titled this series, uh, Picture of a Faithful Christian Servant. And the reason we did that is because 2 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Greek city of Corinth. And uh, he had a relationship with He's the guy that started it, um, but there were some relational problems that had formed uh, between them. Um, there were people that were attacking his credibility and his authority as an apostle, and so he writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, in a lot of ways to defend himself and his credibility and to be able to continue to exert a positive influence over this church that's here in Corinth. And so as he's doing this, he's kind of showing us a picture of what his life looks like and the picture of what the life of a faithful Christian servant should look like. So last week, a faithful Christian servant is someone that's sincere and trustworthy, that their word actually means something. Uh, you see, Paul had to change some travel plans that he's addressing at the beginning of this letter. He had originally expressed an intention to come and visit them another time, and then he had to end up changing those plans. And this caused some of his opponents in Corinth to say, ah, I see, Paul's just wishy-washy, you can't really count on what he says, he's not really a trustworthy guy. Um, and he assured them that just as God is trustworthy, he also uh, is trustworthy because he tried to God, uh, and that there were good reasons for why he changed those travel plans. 
And today, we are going to see what that reason is. Um, So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our text. God, I thank you that that you're here with us. Holy Spirit, I thank you that um, you dwell within your people. God, that you actually choose to make us your temple. Um, Lord, I uh, thank you for your word and the power that it has. I pray uh, that as we open it up this morning, God, that you would give us uh, eyes to see, that you'd give us ears to hear. God, that we would be people that um, see and perceive, that we hear and understand, and that God, we wouldn't just be doers of the, uh, hearers of the word, but that we'd be doers of the word. So God, help us to understand what you have to say to us this morning and help us to be people that take that from here and actually apply it in our lives. So we love you, Lord. I pray that you would uh, remove distractions from us and just help us to focus in on what you have to say this morning. Uh, Speak through me, Lord. We love you. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 23. And then we will read through chapter 2, verse 11. So here we go. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Okay, so uh, we'll stop there for now. Um, As I've spoken about a little bit on previous Sundays, if you want to understand the Bible, we first have to understand that it's actually a historical document, right? Like it's composed uh, real historical uh, letters, uh, histories, that, that kind of thing, that were written to specific people at a specific place in time for a specific reason. Um, We have to first understand what was going on there before we'll be able to accurately apply it in our lives. So sometimes that involves us uh, doing a little bit of observation to try and figure out what was going on in this situation. So we see happening the situation here in 2 Corinthians is that Paul is giving the reason he didn't visit them a second time, uh, even though he originally intended to. And it's not because he was wishy-washy. It's not that you can't trust what he says. As we discussed that last week, we saw that in the verses prior to this. But the reason that he didn't visit them a second time is because he wanted to spare them. Okay, he says, spare them from what? 
Well, he wanted to spare them from the pain that another personal visit would have caused. You see, he already made one painful visit to them, which is, impl- uh, is alluded to in chapter 2, verse 1, right? He says, so I made up my mind to not make another painful visit to you. Okay, so that implies there was already one painful visit that Paul had to make. Uh, it seems like the last time he came, it was a painful experience for everybody involved. Uh, what happened, uh, but given the way that people were attacking his character and his authority, um, it, as well as the many sin problems that were documented in Corinth, uh, there was probably a lot of really hard stuff that had to be dealt with on this visit, and it might have made some people unhappy. Um, in all likelihood, Paul was confronting sin in the church while assuring them of his love and devotion for them. Uh, no, like I said, we can't be 100% sure of what was going on. Who knows? convinced in-person visit was not going to be beneficial for anyone involved, all right? It wasn't going to be beneficial for the Corinthians. Uh, Paul had a desire for their joy, okay? He, he wasn't someone that uh, got some sort of excitement about ruling over them as a tyrant, right? He was the apostle that came and led them to Jesus. He had a certain a, a spiritual authority in their lives, but he was by no means uh, looking forward to, I guess my mic is having issues here. How's this? Oh, um, he was by no means looking forward to uh, tr- trying to just kind of lay the hammer down on them, okay? He wasn't a, uh, somebody that gets excitement out of that. We see in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, <clears throat> because it is by f- faith you stand firm. Paul doesn't want to lord over people. He wants them to have joy. And he knew that another visit was not going to be something that facilitated that. And also, not only was this painful visit going to be tough for the Corinthians if he came again, but it was also going to be tough for him, right? Uh, we see that it was going to hurt him to do this. He says in verses 2 and 3, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. Making them sad was going to make him sad. And if everybody was sad, then there'd be nobody there to comfort each other. So for the sake of everyone, it was best for him just not to make this personal visit. Now, before you think that Paul was simply avoiding a difficult situation, though, I want you to note that he did address the issue that was going on. He just believed it was better to address it in a different way. Look at verse 4. It says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You see, there was a problem going on in Corinth that he really did care about. He just knew that going in person wasn't the best way to address it, but he wasn't going to sweep it under the rug or just kind of hope that it went away. What he did is instead he chose to write a letter to them that was addressing the stuff that was going on. Now, there's some debate as to what exactly this letter was and what it might have said. Uh, Some people think that the letter that he's alluding to here is 1 Corinthians, okay? That was a letter that was written to this church. There's strength in this argument, uh, and that 1 Corinthians certainly does address a lot of problems that are going on in the church that might have caused Paul anguish and distress, right? There were divisions. There was sexual morality. uh, There was a lack of concern for others. uh, They had bad attitudes during communion. They uh, didn't appreciate the different giftings of people in the church, There was disorder in their worship services. Some were even claiming that there was no resurrection. There's a lot of problems that you see going on that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians. So some say, yeah, that's probably the letter that he wrote there. 
um, that he's referring to. But most biblical scholars think that the letter he's referring to is actually one that we don't have preserved. It's some other letter uh, that just never made its way into the scriptural canon. And that's because even though 1 Corinthians does address a lot of issues that are going on, uh, the general tone of the letter doesn't seem to be heavy enough to merit the description that he gives it in 2 Corinthians about writing with tears and anguish. Um, there's a few other reasons as well that is probably not 1 Corinthians. Um, one is that he talks constantly about his future plans to visit in, in 1 Corinthians, and yet we see that this severe letter was written in place of a visit, so that means it's probably not 1 Corinthians. And also, 1 Corinthians is just covering so much material, it seems like it's probably getting outside the scope of whatever the very specific issue is that he needed to deal with here. Um, if it is some missing letter, like most biblical scholars think, it's fine that we don't have it, okay? Uh, there's no reason to believe that absolutely everything that Paul wrote should be Scripture, okay? Paul's grocery list shouldn't be Scripture. Um, so it's okay. Like, the Lord is the one that's overseen the process of, of what's made it into the biblical canon. If this was a letter uh, that was written to them that we don't have anymore, then it was likely a very personal letter between him and the church that didn't need to be preserved and circulated and passed around by other churches, which is how we got all the other letters that make up our New Testament. Um, so what was this letter addressing that, that, that Paul wrote to them, this one that was full of anguish and tears? Um, if the letter was 1 Corinthians, then we have a good idea of what it was addressing, which is quite a bit. Um, but if the letter is one that we don't have, we aren't sure specifically what it's addressing, but the context tells us that it has to be addressing sin of some kind, all right? Um, it could be a sin that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 that we'll look at later. Uh, it could also be some kind of sin where people were lying about Paul, slandering him. Uh, we see references to that a lot in 2 Corinthians. But whatever the letter was and whatever it was specifically addressing, one thing is clear, which is that it was not an easy letter to write. You know, Paul says that he wrote this in distress and anguish and many tears. And this makes sense to me. Because if he was writing a letter to confront sin, that's not something that's easy to do. I don't know about you guys if you've ever had to confront sin in the life of a friend, but there's probably like 10 million things you would rather do other than that first. Okay? But it's something that you actually do to love them. He says he did this not to grieve them, but to let them know the depth of the love that he has for them. When we're willing to confront sin in someone's life, it's not easy, but it's something that we should do for their good. You're not loving your friends well if you see them doing something that's destructive and you continue to just let them walk in that. You know, I'm thankful that I have people in my life that love me enough to confront me about my sin when they see it. Uh, one of the great sins that, that I've been prone to throughout a lot of my life and that I still have to fight against is pride. Um, and this can, can come out in a lot of different ways, but one thing it can do is it can make me an overly competitive person. Now, I'm not saying that competition is bad in and of itself, uh, but my desire to be successful, uh, no matter what, can sometimes cause me to put my success above my care for other people. And in doing that, there's, there's times that would come out even in just like things like playing sports, uh, right? I had some people in the church that were willing to sit me down and talk to me about the attitude that I would have with that and the way that I would view other people when I was doing that. And I know that this wasn't easy for them, right? They were trying to confront something that they thought was off in my heart. 
And it was extra hard because it wasn't even something that was black and white. There wasn't something they could point to of like, you're explicitly doing this and it's, it's clearly a sin. But they loved me enough to sit me down and say, Grant, what's going on in your heart when we, we see some of these kind of things? They just sensed that something was off of me. They wanted to talk about that, and I'm thankful for that. Because if they didn't, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity to repent. And I would have continued to hurt people the way that I was. You know, I know that confronting sin is hard. Because there's times that I've specifically failed to do this with fellow Christians that needed me to. Um, I, I had a friend when I was younger, um, younger staff member, my first or second year on staff probably, uh, he would always tell exaggerated stories about his experiences and his accomplishments. And they were the kind of things that like you knew that these stories could not be true, right? I think you guys probably know some people like that. Um, he was a guy that was in our church. And there were even those of us that would kind of talk about how his stories were so exaggerated. We all knew that he was doing this. But none of us had the courage to actually speak to him about this problem. Instead, we just spoke about the problem behind his back. And eventually he graduated. Uh, he started going to another church. I, I got together with him again later uh, just to catch up. And, uh, you know, I asked him what was going on in his life. And he told me that he had joined this small group and that uh, the guys in the small group had confronted him about this issue. That he was always, you know, telling these stories that were exaggerated and, and didn't seem true. And he was always trying to draw attention to himself. And he's like, man, I was, I was really thankful that they pointed that out. And he repented, and he stopped doing that. And that was really convicting for me because that was something that me and some of my other friends all knew and saw, but we lacked the courage to be able to help him with it. You know, praise God for those other men in his life that did have the courage to confront what was going on in him. You know, I think that there's several reasons why we're sometimes unwilling to confront sin, even if we see it in the life of a friend. And the first reason is because we feel like we'd be judgmental for doing it, right? We say, who am I to judge, right? Like Jesus told us not to judge. And sometimes we even misinterpret Scripture to support our inaction, okay? Here's, here's something that people might look at. Uh, Matthew 7, 1 to 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Right? So, I mean, in, in one sense, we could look at it and say, clear and simple, Jesus told us not to judge. Yeah, well, what Jesus is telling us not to do there is to judge, but what, what he's talking about is the practice of looking down on another person and thinking that you are better than them because of some deficiency that you see in their life without, taking, without having the humility to see the deficiencies in your own life. He's not saying that we can't be people that discern sin. As a matter of fact, he doesn't condemn the act of removing the speck. He even tells us that we should help remove the speck there, right? Oh, but what he does, he tells us you got to remove the plank out of your own eye first. So it's not that he's telling us we shouldn't confront sin. He's just saying that before we confront sin in others, we need to make sure that we're people that are really serious about confronting sin in ourselves as well. All right? It's not a ticket away from the responsibility that we have to help each other grow in holiness. It's actually upping the ante saying, you better be really serious about this in your own life first. But then you're also going to be able to see clearly to help remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
You know, this speaks to the importance of love and humility being the driving factors that cause us to confront sin in the life of another. When we're judging another person, when we're doing the kind of thing that Jesus is telling us not to do, that's usually a function of pride and insecurity. It's me wanting to lift myself up against, uh, over another person. When I confront sin or rebuke, if you want to use a more biblical term, th- that is not a function of pride and insecurity. That's a function of love, saying that I'm trying to help this person grow in holiness. As a matter of fact, we see that Jesus explicitly tells us to do this. Look at uh, Luke 17.3. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Look at Matthew 18.15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Right? That's the first step. We'll see the other steps later. But what we see here, Jesus is not by any means telling us that we should be people that only deal with our own business and don't worry about what's going on in the lives of others. He's just saying make sure you take care of your own business really well and also go and help your, other, uh, your brothers and sisters out of love and humility. And this is part of how we actually love each other really well. We have a duty as brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm talking about the church here, to hold each other accountable to the commitment that we have made. Right? Like, like if you are a Christian, if you are part of God's church, you have made a commitment that, that you are a follower of Jesus, that you no longer live for yourself, that you live for him. And the, the church is not supposed to just be a, an event, okay? Like you, you are part of the church. This thing right here on Sunday morning that we do, this is just one function of what the church does together. But ultimately what we are is a family of believers that are trying to push each other closer to Jesus, it's not, it's not something where we just sit in the pew and listen to a guy for an hour, however long he wants to preach. I probably won't go an hour today, but can't promise it. Um, but anyway, we, we love each other well by helping each other hold to the commitment and the high calling to follow Jesus that we've said that we want to make. You know, one of the other reasons I think that we don't confront sin in the lives of others is because we fear that it will ruin the relationship. And the first thing I would say about this is we cannot let fear about consequences be something that holds us back from obedience to Jesus, okay? Um, you know, Abu was up here talking about the, the, the place that he lives. There's danger. I mean, he has a, a personal friend that's been shot and killed, like, for following Jesus in the area where he lives. Um, we can't let fears of things like that stop us from the obedience uh, t- to Christ that he, that he deserves, Okay, but the, the second thing I would say is we don't know what's going to happen with something like this. But if this person is a brother or sister in Christ and you do this the proper way in love and in humility, it actually has a good chance of being something that strengthens your relationship rather than weakens it. Right. Um, the, 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 I told you I was thankful that I have people in my life that love me enough to do this. I had to do this one time with uh, I had to confront a brother. I had to do this on several occasions. Uh, one time I had a, a friend who was a relatively new Christian in our church, and I found out that he was uh, buying alcohol for underage people uh, that were his friends. And at, at first I was kind of upset when I heard that, and so I went to, to confront him about it and sit him down. And um, when I told him that this wasn't something he should do it, be doing because as Christians we're supposed to obey the laws of our government, so even if you think that the drinking age is stupid, like, the Bible tells us to submit to the authorities that are over us. We need to honor that. You shouldn't be buying alcohol for underage people. It's illegal. Um, honestly, as I explained this stuff to him, he was really thankful. And, and 
he responded well, and he stopped doing it. And the thing was, he was just a new Christian. Like, he didn't understand that it wasn't okay to be doing that. And so our relationship actually grew stronger from my willingness to go and love him enough to help him hold to the commitment to follow Jesus, which he had previously said he wanted to do. And, you know, the last reason I think that we are sometimes unwilling to confront sin in the lives of others is because we tell ourselves it's just not that big of a deal. Right? So we, we kind of say, ah, well, yeah, whatever, I'll just tolerate it. It's, it's not that big of a deal for them to go on sinning. But sin is a really big deal. Right? Like, it is a really big deal. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Like, sin is what sent Jesus to the cross to have to die for us. His blood had to be shed for us to be forgiven of sin. We can't act like uh, sin is just not really that big of a deal. It's a huge offense against the holy God. And it's something that's destructive. Not only does God hate it, it's bad for that person, and it hurts other people around you too when you're sinning. That's part of why God doesn't want us to do it. And so we have to take it seriously. And so as Paul wrote this letter, he was clearly confronting sin, and we got to see what did the church do in response to this difficult letter that Paul wrote. Um, Well, we see in uh, verses 5 and 6 that they actually must have executed some kind of punishment on the guy, not executing him. They carried out punishment uh, on the guy. All right, so you see in in verses uh, 5 and 6, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Okay, so Remember, we're piecing things together here. We can't know every detail. I can't answer every question that you would have about this. I don't know exactly what the punishment was that they inflicted upon him. But what I can tell you is probably likely, I'm guessing, that they uh, kicked him out of the church and didn't associate with him. Um, And I say this because that is what Paul actually instructed this same Corinthian to do uh, with an unrepentant sinner that he wrote about in 1 Corinthians. All right, now this is a bit of a lengthy passage, but I'm actually going to go back to 1 Corinthians 5 to help you see this concept of church discipline and how the church actually needs to deal with sin in its midst. All right, um, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. 
Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Okay, that's an intense passage. Um, I could preach a whole sermon on it. I have preached a whole sermon on it. You can go back and listen to it on our website if you want to. It's called Church Discipline. I preached it on September 30th, 2018. Uh, But because it's not our main passage here today, um, I do want to point out just a few things uh, concerning church discipline, because I know this is a tough concept for people. But I want you to see why, why Paul is instructing the church to do this and why this is part of the Word of God telling us as the church that we should handle sin in this way. Um, first off, uh, this is something that is only supposed to be done for unrepentant sinners who claim to be Christians. Okay, the verb tense here is present. That's this isn't just a, this isn't some punishment that's being executed on a guy that used to do something, but now he's not. Right? It says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is a present sin that this guy is continuing in, and it has to be assumed that this person was already confronted individually and by a small group. Why? Because this is exactly how Jesus told us to confront sin. Uh, Matthew eighteen fifteen. We read a little bit earlier, but I'm going to read more of it. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You see, this kind of discipline that Paul is, is telling the Corinthian church to carry out on this sexually immoral person is not something that you just do on a whim. Th- this is something that is basically a last-ditch effort to try and help a person that won't listen to an individual, that won't listen to a small group, that won't even listen to the whole church telling them that what they're doing is wrong and sinful. All right? And notice as well, this is church discipline. Um, this is something only for people who claim to be Christians, right? In verse 11, he says that I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is doing these things. Okay? So we're not supposed to just go and, and be like uh, really angry with all sorts of people outside the church and, and say, I'm not going to hang out with anyone who's engaging in sin, any of that kind of stuff. This is something that's only supposed to be done for people that are calling themselves Christians but choosing to live in unrepentant sin that have continued to ignore the reproof of their brothers and sisters after repeated attempts. All right? And why is it that this is something that we would do? Well, the second principle is that this is something that protects the church. Right? He says there in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? You see, if sin is allowed to just go unchecked in the church, what he's getting at is this idea that, man, th- this is something that has the opportunity to spread and continue to cause problems in other ways throughout the church. If you tolerate this sin, it might cause others to go and engage in the same thing. It might cause people to tolerate other kinds of sin. It might dilute the witness of the church because you're no longer living as the holy people that you're supposed to. There's all sorts of different ways that this could be very destructive for the whole church. And so for the sake of the body, this person has to be expelled. But not just for the good of the church, it's also for the good of that person. That's the third principle. This is, the, is for the restoration of the sinner. Look at verse, uh, verse 4 there. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What he's getting at here is, when you put this person out from fellowship of the church, 
that's going to have like that's going to be difficult, right? Like there's there's going to be problems that they encounter. They're going to lose a lot of the friendship and the comfort and the support and all these kind of things that they had from the church. But the hope is that as they go through that pain and that difficulty, it's something that's going to bring them to their senses, that they would repent and then later be able to be brought back into the fellowship. And this last point is what leads us to the action that the Corinthian church needed to take now. All right, they'd executed some punishment, but look at what Paul said in verse 6 of our main passage. But once again, I also want to reiterate, I don't know if the sin he addressed in the severe letter was this sin in 1 Corinthians 5. It may have been. It may have been something else, but the principle holds the same. But look at this. After a person repents, the idea is to bring them back into fellowship. 2 Corinthians 2, 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. You see, none of this is ever about trying to just be angry and be harsh with people. We have a God that has a love for you, I think, that is is so much deeper than what you probably understand. I, I feel like I'm consistently seeing new depths of the love that God has for people. And when he commands us to do something, even something that seems as harsh and difficult as, as church discipline, that might almost be like, oh, God's angry or something like that. Remember that at the heart of it is God's love for people and his desire for them to be restored. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven shows this heart beautifully. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. <clears throat> turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Our God is not a God that takes pleasure in executing wrath. Does he execute wrath? Yes, he does. He's very serious about sin, and, and he will punish all sin, but that is not what he wants to do ultimately. He doesn't want to punish sin on you. He wants you to repent and turn and be forgiven. This is his heart. Jesus shows the same heart in his command to forgive. In Luke 17, 3, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. God's heart is always for repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. That's what he's always trying to work towards. That's his great goal. And that's what we should be seeking as well. You see, this is what the Corinthian church was instructed to do. They'd executed some amount of punishment on this guy, but now it seems that he was repentant and it was time to restore him. There's a lot of application that can be made from this text for us today. But I would say that really it can be summarized in this statement of what uh, we're seeing about a faithful Christian servant today, which is that a faithful Christian servant seeks the good of others. That's really what we have to take away from this is that we would be people that, just like our God, are always ultimately seeking the good of others. Okay? And how do we do that? There's four main ways here. First off, that we would be people that repent of sin in our own lives. Right? Your sin affects you, and it affects the people around you. It's not just a personal thing. Um, sin is what brings suffering in this world. 
okay? So anytime that you're greedy or prideful or lustful or or, uh, arrogant or tell a coarse joke or anything like that, you're, you're not just harming yourself. Like, you're also harming people that are around you. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 2, 5, you know, Paul said, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it so severely. Our sin hurts the people around us. And so one of the best ways that we can seek the good of others is to be people that are serious about holiness in our own lives. The second thing that we need to do if we really want to seek the good of others is to lovingly call out sin in the lives of other Christians when it's necessary. Okay? And nobody's exempt from this. I'm not exempt from this either, right? Like, uh, if you guys see sin in my life, I'm inviting you and asking you to confront that with me, right? Now, I want you to do it in a humble and loving manner, but you guys are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I'm not perfect. I'm not, I'm not fully <laughs> sanctified yet, okay? God's sanctifying me, but one of the ways that he does that is through you guys. And, and one of the, way, the ways that he does that with you is through all the rest of us. And so if we are going to be people that are continually trying to become more like Jesus, there's probably going to be times where we need a friend to, to love us enough to confront the sin that's in our lives. You know, we're all here to help each other faithfully follow Jesus. Our mission statement here at H2O is to help one another become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And when we confront sin in the lives of others, that's one of the things that we help them do. But remember... The loving part, right? This isn't like a witch hunt that we're going on. We're not trying to find sin under every rock and create problems. But we are trying to address it honestly and lovingly when we actually see it. The third thing I'd say that we need to do if we want to seek the good of others is that we need to treat, treat sin in the church seriously. Um, if you do lovingly rebuke someone and they don't listen, then you need to follow the steps that Jesus commanded us to, that you would involve a couple others to go and have them help you kind of work it out with this person. If they don't listen, then you can start to bring it before the church. But we need to be people that that don't try to just kind of sweep things under the rug. Know that sin is a serious problem that can, can hurt the people and hurt the church. And finally, the fourth thing I'd say is that we need to forgive the repentant and affirm our love for them. Right? This is really important. We have to have the same heart for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration that God does. Um, the last part of our main text today, we didn't look at it too much, but it's verses 8 through 11. I want to reread it here. It says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. You see, we are to be people that are obedient in everything. And one of the things that we are called to be obedient in as Christians is to be people that forgive. Right? That's what Jesus said. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Even if he comes back to you seven times a day saying, I repent, that you would forgive him. When you became a Christian, if you have become a Christian, you gave up your right to hold grudges. Like, we don't, we don't get to do that as Christians. You don't get to continue to sit in bitterness and, and, and anger and hatred towards people. Like, we've been forgiven much. That's one of the biggest things we understand as Christians is that we realize we have been forgiven of such a massive debt. 
You see, when you see the debt that you've been forgiven, it frees you to understand that you need to be a person that extends that same kind of forgiveness to others. And I'm not saying that's always easy. Sometimes people sin against us in some really messed up ways. I'm not discounting that, all right? And I'm not saying this is always easy. Remember, we're here for each other. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone that sinned against you, then once again, like, let's, get, let's help each other out, right? If you're saying, man, I, I, I'm, I know I need to forgive this person, but I am just stuck in bitterness, then, then have somebody pray for you. Have a friend talk this out with you. Like, ask God to help transform your heart to, to, to have a greater uh, appreciation for the grace that you've been given and to be able to extend that even against people that have, have done horrible things potentially to you. All right? I know that this is something that can be best worked out in the context of community. If you're sitting here today, you're saying, I'm having a really hard time forgiving somebody, even though they've been repentant, then, then I would encourage you, man, go ask for, for someone to pray for you, to even just have forgiveness in your heart for this person. You know, it's so essential that we would be people that reflect the grace of God in our lives and give it out to others as well. Again, not only because this is best for us, right? You're going to have a lot more joy when you're able to let go of that bitterness and that anger. But also, this is something that's really important for the church, to have unity, which God cares about a ton. You see, you know who wants you to sit in bitterness and anger? Satan. Right? Satan does, right? That's why he says... uh, Paul's talking about the importance of forgiveness. Why? Verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. What is the scheme of Satan? To, to keep us in harboring grudges and bitterness and unforgiveness towards others. That's one of his schemes. And, and a lot of the time, we, we walk right into it and allow him to continue to keep us in this spot. That's going to keep you miserable, and that's going to keep the the church disunified. And so I don't know what this guy did in Corinth, but Paul realizes that it was essential that since this guy is repentant, that he has to be forgiven, and that the church has to forgive him and restore him and affirm their love for him. You know, may we be people that reflect our God. I praise him that he's a God that loves us enough to seek our good, right? And he does that how? Like, God calls out our sin. The, the Bible is very clear about that, right? Like, you're not doing anyone any favors if you let them think that they don't have a, a sin problem in their lives. The Bible is very clear about it. The wages of sin is death. You know, by Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, Jesus warned that unless you believe in him, that, that you're going to die in your sins. This is a, a serious reality that, that God loves us enough to let us know the problem that we have. But praise God that he also loves us enough to do something about it. And that his heart is that beautiful heart we talked about that's always for forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And so what did he do? Jesus Christ came. He's God. He, he takes on flesh. He lives a perfect life on this earth. He never sins. The one person that never needed to be rebuked. And he dies on the cross, bearing the penalty for my sins and for yours. So that we could be people that don't have to bear the penalty for that sin ourselves. Because yes, as I said, God does execute wrath for sin, but his heart is for forgiveness. 
And so because he's a just God, he's still going to punish sin. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, the wages of sin is death, and I'm punishing it on the death of Christ. And that those that would put their faith in him will not have to suffer that punishment on themselves because Jesus has already taken it for you. And that those that will put their faith in Christ are given eternal life. We're given that righteousness of Jesus that when God looks at us, he no longer sees my sin because that's been taken away by Christ. Instead, he sees the righteous life of Jesus and brings me into fellowship with him. Guys, this is the gospel. Christianity is not about you working your way up to be some kind of person that God loves and is pleased with. God already loves you in the midst of your sin. He, he loves you so much more than you think he does. And that's why he's willing to confront you about your sin. And that's why he's willing to do what's necessary to forgive you of sin and to invite you to be forgiven and restored with him. And man, when, when you come to realize that, that is the kind of thing that changes your life. Christianity is not a set of rules. It's not a club that we get together in that, you know, kind of try and be decent people. This is a family of people that have been rescued by our God that are in love with him and that pursue him because of that love. And not only do we pursue him, but we pursue others, right? Because God is making us like him. We're being made more and more to be like him every day. That's what he's trying to do in sanctification. And so just as God loves us enough to confront our sin and to invite us into repentance and forgiveness and restoration, we need to be people that love each other enough to confront sin and to invite each other into forgiveness. Right? So we, may we be a, a gospel community, a community of people that are captivated by the great love of our God, and that have a heart that reflects his heart, that seeks the good of others. Let's pray. Um, God, I just thank you for um, how amazing you are. God, I've been following you for a couple decades now, and um, I feel like I still am captivated by the love that you have for me. God, I consistently see the beauty of who you are in your scriptures. And Lord, I, I see the beauty of who you are in, in all sorts of things, even things like the, the perfect weather weekend that you gave us. God, you're just a God that, that gives good gifts, that loves his children, and that, that desires that we would have life. And, and Lord, I thank you that you lead us in what's good, that you teach us what's good and what's right. And I pray that uh, we would be people that treasure that that want to walk in obedience to you. Lord, if there's sin in our lives, I, I pray that that would be repented of today. God, I pray that um, for people in this room, for all of us, God, if there's sin in our lives, I just pray that you'd convict us of it. Lord, that you'd bring us to a spot of repentance. And God, if there's sin that we need to confront in the lives of others, I pray that you would give us the courage to do that because we love them enough to seek their good. God, I pray that um, as people repent, uh, you would give us the, uh, the hearts to want to forgive, and to want to restore. So God, I thank you so much for who you are. You, you are a good and perfect God. You consistently prove that. And I just pray that you would be... Uh, be pleased 
with the, the praise from our lips that we're about to lift up to you and uh, with the praise from our lives that we're going to live out as we go forth this week. And we pray all this in the awesome name of your son, Jesus. Amen.